In this episode of Non-Native Creative, I spoke with Toronto-based Ibrahim Youssef. Ibrahim's creative work has netted him a long list of awards and professional recognition, and he's held the title of creative director or artistic director throughout his career, but these days he simply refers to himself as creative. Ibrahim is Canadian-Egyptian, and he was born in Canada, where he lived until he was nine. He moved to Egypt with his family, where he stayed until he was 23, and then he returned to Canada to finish his design degree. His creative work has afforded him the opportunity to work with people from many different countries. He spent some years in Asia developing campaigns and other projects for clients from places like Hong Kong, Korea, and Singapore, to name just a few. This talk includes some advice for how to stand out in a very competitive creative market, as well as how to adapt when you find yourself in situations that are outside your linguistic or cultural comfort zone. We talked about the effects of social media on creativity today, and also why Ibrahim thinks that someone who has a lot of different side projects might be someone who knows how to think a bit differently. This was a super pleasant talk, so I hope that you check out Ibrahim's work and his cool side projects from the links in the description. Also, please visit patreon.com slash non-native to get a transcript of this discussion and other bonus materials. Your support will help make sure the project can continue. Enjoy! On this week's episode of Non-Native Creative, I am very excited to welcome Ibrahim Youssef to the show. Uh, he is a creative director, artistic director, multi-talented human with experience ranging from Hong Kong to Singapore to Jakarta, Indonesia to now Toronto. He has so many cool campaigns that he's worked on, so many cool projects, and I'm very excited to have him uh, this week. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for being a part of the project. Thank you, Alicia, for having me. Like, it's such an uh, exciting show and format that you've created over here. Honored to be a part of it. Thank you. I'm so excited. So uh, I'm going to kick off this uh, episode with the same question that I ask everybody uh, at the beginning of the show. Uh, the question is silly, but please imagine yourself as if you were a superhero in today's world, a creative superhero of sorts. If you had to describe your origin story or the thing that kind of started everything off, a, a moment or an experience that got you going on the path that you're on today, what would that thing be? So the superhero that comes to mind, and I'm kind of jealous because there's a British comedian named Richard Aoyade that kind of already took it and made a show out of it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like Marvel hasn't done it yet, so it's still up for grabs. Uh, it's Travel Man. Travel Man. I would, I would call myself Travel Man. I'm sorry, okay. Richard, but you know, I'm gonna, I'll fight you for it. So Travel Man, and uh, it really, I would say my origin story is growing up in a very multicultural family. My mother's Canadian, my father's Egyptian, and uh, they met in Canada, and then we ended up going to Egypt and living there for 13 years, and so I, I grew up in a family that traveled a lot, extensively. My dad traveled a lot before he came to Canada. And even as growing up in, um, in Cairo, we, we did trips to Europe. And then when I came, we came back to Toronto, Canada uh, in the early 2000s. And then I guess kept traveling by myself. So it's always kind of been in my DNA. Mm. Yeah, travel, man. I think that's it. Very cool. Very cool. So starting with the multicultural family points, so you said your mother is from Canada and your father from yeah. Egypt then. So yeah. what, what was that like for you growing up? You know, 
having all these multicultural experiences as a young person, did you feel excited by them or kind of, was it uh, difficult as well, like uh, as a kid, as a young person in that situation? I wouldn't say it's difficult. I would just say it was different because, uh, you know, growing up the first nine years of my life in Canada, I kind of realized that my family was a little bit different than my friends in school who all had like, you know, Canadian moms and dads. Um, so there was this part of my fa- my upbringing in the first nine years of my life, the Egyptian side of my family that I wasn't too aware of. So I didn't really know how to speak Arabic. And I would hear stories about Egypt, where my dad is from, but I did, couldn't really relate. But it wasn't until we moved to Cairo as a family in the in the 1990 going to going to Egypt. Uh, it was a, a very steep learning curve because suddenly uh, I was this nine year old Canadian Egyptian kid in mm-hmm. Egypt. I didn't really know anything about Egyptian culture. I didn't speak the language. Mm-hmm. So for the first two years, uh, you could say there was a little bit of bullying, right? Like, you know, kids just tease who they don't understand. Mm-hmm. But um, quickly, I, I kind of like got a handle of the culture over there. And in retrospect, now from my position, I look back to that exposure that I got when I was younger. And I'm so, so grateful to uh, both my parents for essentially giving me a little bit of Eastern and Western perspective. And it really kind of rounds things up and, and it, it really helped me throughout my life and throughout my career to think from both sides, from both perspectives and then kind of, uh, get a better uh, idea of what other people and other cultures may think. So at the heart of my, my being is that duality, which is really, really interesting because I'm always, in, always considering things from two perspectives. I mean, mm-hmm. the East and the West is kind of the metaphor for that. Sure. Wow. Okay. So do you, was this something that you think you realized even as a young person, perhaps intuitively, and then were kind of able to put words to it as you grew older? Yeah, definitely. I I definitely felt uh, more aware of it and was able to articulate what that duality kind of felt when I maybe like it started, I would say, uh, when I came back to Canada. So growing up in Egypt, it kind of just felt like a very seamless experience because it was there from until I was nine years old and then nine till 23. Right. It just felt like normal. Okay. And almost like the, you know, the, the first nine years of my life, you, you don't really remember too much about it. So that felt like life as it was, but mm-hmm. it wasn't until we came back to Canada that I really started to, that duality started to kick in. It's like, oh, wow. There's, t- there are totally two different cultures from so many different, in so many different ways. And you start introspecting and, and thinking like, oh, why are they different? What does that mean? How, how does it affect me? Um, and it's, uh, it, it really, really is an amazing, uh, blessing, especially in this more connected world. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then how did, in the process of, of kind of of shifting from Canada to Egypt and then back to Canada, how did you kind of get drawn to more creative pursuits then? What was kind of the, uh, the maybe was there kind of a, a thing that kind of attracted you about doing something more artistic as opposed to saying, you know, going into like a business field? 
I've always had the artistic gene in me in, in a sense. So um, as, as young as I can remember, I've always been drawing and uh, my mother, God bless her. She always kept, you know, all the drawings that I did. And like, I think a couple birthdays ago, she gave me all like this big box of drawings that I had since I was three years old. She's like, happy birthday. And like, oh, I was so going, cool. That's so sweet. Right. Yeah. And uh, looking through them, I'm like, wow, like I was really, really, really active. I mean, one thing that I really consciously remember uh, that kind of showed not just the artistic side from a very young age, because we all do drawings, but more the artistic slash entrepreneurial side mm-hmm. together, which is no surprise that I'm doing I'm being uh, creative for a living. So I started um, a comic book and I drew the whole comic book. I drew puzzles um, and I uh, had different characters, different different adventures and different series. And I, I created a company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny. I created a company for the comic book, which I wasn't aware of Budget, the, the car rental company. But I called, somehow I called my comic book company Budget. Okay. Budget Comics. Okay. <laughs> That's cute. How old are and you I, at this point? Do you know? Uh, like eight years old or nine years old or something like that. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Okay. And I kept it go. It, 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 it had a pretty good run. So I kept doing it up until like my, my like late teens, like until 16, 17. So oh, I was like, wow. 10 years, like these comics, right? Wow. Like, and I used to sell them to my family members and friends. <laughs> Look at that. Got a business going then, right? Yeah. Did you yeah, ever get any so, feedback from your customers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, they would say, like, can you do a little bit more of this character and, like, not mm-hmm. that character? And, like, so mm-hmm. looking back right now, like, I have characters that I've kind of developed, like, from eight years old until, like, eight, like 16 or 17. Mm-hmm. Just kind of funny to read right now, like, how it just gives you an insight into, like, how the beginnings of how you used to think as a being as a creative mm. um and it's it's funny looking back at it from this position right now yeah absolutely so how did that experience transition into like moving beyond just drawings moving beyond uh comic books and things like that because the work that you do now is well it's varied of course you still have uh mm. artistic work illustration work but you've been a part of uh, a variety of different uh campaigns and projects some of which do involve uh, art like in a professional capacity but how did how did you move to other artistic fields I would say the 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 spark that started it all would be the computer as soon as the computer came into my life uh, sure playing games on the computer was fun but the idea of experimenting with creative programs on the computer I found that so interesting as much as I love drawing and I still do but the idea I'm thinking of the early days of like being opening Photoshop and, and just thinking like, wow, uh, I could change colors in an instant or I could create different layers. Like you could work, you could do so much more to your base art. So I would scan sketches in and then manipulate them and in, in try to like as uh, as creatives and, and designers, we tend to be a very unsatisfied lot. So it's like, we need options. <laughs> right? A computer really helps with that, right? It's like, I want to see this in blue. I want to see this in red. I want to see this and so on. So the computer was the first spark to kind of open my, my horizon in a sense Mm -hmm. to a world beyond drawings. And then it just 
design. It was a natural evolution of, okay, I'm playing around with my drawings on the computer, but then I, the first time, like a, a friend, uh, a friend's dad, I think, asked me, he's like, oh, your friend that works on the computer, do you think he could like do a logo for me or something like that? Mm-hmm. Back in the early days, uh, you know, get a kid to do it for cheap or whatever. Right, right. right. That, it just gets you start, you start thinking, you're like, oh, that's, that's really interesting. Like, oh, I, I actually, and for a kid, like I made really good money doing that. And I really like doing that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I think the combination of the options and the excitement of using technology to express creativity, but also, you know, um, what money can offer and a good, good income, like the possibilities that extra money can offer you was, it was exciting. It's like, Oh, I could, I could buy that cassette tape player that I want right now. Right. Right. So I was like, Oh, I think, uh, I think this is going to be a good path, career path for me. (laughs) Excellent. Wow. So that's, that seems like a very like concrete experience where you go, Oh, I can do this for money. Like I can actually make a job out of this. Like that's a real, that's a moment for, for a kid, I think, you know, for that, that moment where you realize this thing that you like to do, people will actually maybe pay you for it. Like that's, that must've been really exciting. So did that push you to encourage or encourage you maybe to pursue like formal studies of a specific design field? Yes. Oh, okay. So at, at the time when I started really playing around with the computer, I was in uh, I would say on a most serious note, I was in, I attended fine arts college in Cairo. Mm-hmm. So I was studying very classical art. So I was doing a lot of sculpture. I was doing a lot of painting, uh, wood carving, very, very traditional things. But, uh, you know, I had, I would finish college and then go 45 minutes on the other side of Cairo. And I, w- I was doing kind of like an internship in this graphic design studio called okay. Hulk, Hulk Pictures, right? So that was kind of where I would, I would make money and uh, kind of really hone my graphic design skills. It wasn't until when we came back to Canada and uh, thinking, okay, what am I going to do now? Because I came back halfway through my degree. I didn't finish my degree in Cairo. I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to get a degree in design. So I went to the Ontario College of Art and Design and uh, finished my degree over there. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of what formally kind of kicked it off. You're studying graphic design and the history of design and advertising and the you can easily transition into the creative field after that. I see. Okay. Wow. So it seems like there, from listening to your story, like it, it seems like there was a fairly consistent path to, that led you to where you are today. Many people describe how they had a series of interests that kind of came at them and then they kind of synthesized them, but synthesized them. But in your experience, it sounds like there was kind of this continuous thread that kind of led you uh just naturally and you were able to progress naturally through that like do you feel that uh like that's something that is kind of unique have you had the chance to to compare your experiences with the other people that are in your field that you work with i wouldn't necessarily say it's um it's unique per se especially speaking to my non-creative friends obviously it's really anything anything creatives do is a mystery to my non-creative friends like the, the left brain right brain thingy right like those those two like uh, my I have two brothers one of them is a is an engineer the other is a photographer right mm-hmm. 
photographer, creative mind, we, you know, we, we get it, right? But the engineer, totally different, analytical, very logical, literal being. Um, and not to say that one is wrong or one is right, but two very, very different things. So w- amongst creatives, amongst my peers, it's, it's, you see that story, maybe not exactly, but it's a recurring theme in terms of how people reached where they were right now. They always were the mm-hmm. ones that could draw in class, but nobody else could draw. And like, they went into art school and then they're like, oh, did some, well, design, I could make money. So it seems to be similar themes throughout. Okay. I see. I see. All right. Great. So then if you were to kind of describe your, your role today, the, uh, your, your title or uh, the position that you have, would you describe yourself as like as uh, art director or creative director? How would you describe the kind of work that you do today? It's, it's funny that uh, titles is always such a thing. I know, right? Creative industries. Like when you start, you're like a, a, a you're a junior designer, then you become a graphic designer, and then you become a junior art director, then an art director, and then an uh-huh. associate creative director. All these like hierarchy that you climb up the hierarchy, and it's uh, I've kind of climbed the hierarchy from the bottom, almost like um, you know creative director, regional creative director in Hong Kong. I was a regional creative director, working managing brands throughout uh, the APAC region, mm-hmm. and it's I'm at this point in, in mind is like, I just liked, you know what? Less is more. I'm a creative. I'm okay. a creative. Right. Uh, so I, 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 and I feel like that kind of just leaves a lot of room to experiment. Like I find like, and I could tell you what art director means and I could tell you what creative director means, but I like the term creative because for real creatives, you, you, you want as you want to dabble in everything. Mm. like oh I want to do this I want to do that I want to do that and like so the creative to me is like the perfect term that kind of allows those interests to express themselves and manifest in the world cool cool okay so broadly then you are a creative as your title I like it (laughs) I like it so you (laughs) mentioned it briefly there then like working uh APAC Uh, I want to move the discussion kind of to an even broader set of cultures and experiences. Was there something that drew you to working in East Asian countries and East Asian cultures? Or was that kind of just like that you had an offer and you were willing to you were willing to accept that offer? Like what was the process there? So I've always been fascinated with Asian cultures, more specifically Japan. Mm. Um, and it was always kind of in the back of my head, whether it's consuming uh, and enjoying Japanese culture in, in its many formats. And uh, around, I want to say eight years ago, I started to think of it on a more serious level. Like, you know what? I really want to go to Asia. Um, I'm going to start studying Japanese. Mm-hmm. So I was living in Boston at the time and I would finish work and I'd go and take Japanese lessons twice or three times a week, right next to where my work is with the hopes of going to Japan uh, some days. And then two years, two years after that, I finally thought, you know what? I think I, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go and try it. So I uh, left my job. I got a one-way ticket to Tokyo. Oh. And uh, I, I arrived in Tokyo and I sang in Meguro. So I've been to, I, you know, later on, I've been to Japan many times, but I was staying in Meguro and uh I had a list of, you know, people and meetings. And I was like, I was like, 
I'm going to get a job in Tokyo. I'm going to uh-huh. cold call people. I'm going to meet people. And it was insane. Like I was like going out and meeting people and cold calling. I didn't end up getting the job. But what, what it made me realize is that Asia's and um, if it's, if not Japan, but Asia isn't as far away, isn't, doesn't have to be a dream. It can be a reality with work. So I didn't, I didn't get anything in, in Japan. Uh, I realized like it's, it's much harder than it is, especially in my field. You really have to have like a really strong command of the language to work in agencies or like mm-hmm. a, a really good connection to kind of get in. But I came back to Toronto and I still had that bug in my head that, you know what, I really want to go to Asia. And um, I spent that year just kind of on LinkedIn, talking to people, seeing the job posting, seeing what's happening. And then I came across um, an agency that's looking for a, a creative team, which was J. Walter Thompson, JWT in Hong Kong. And I thought, who's going to manage that team? Uh, I, I, looked, I went to their website and I, I saw the structure of their agency. It's like, hmm, I feel like they could use another creative director. I'm just inserting myself in there. Okay. So I, uh, I sent my my resume. So I just applied to a position that didn't exist. And they turns out they did have a demand for somebody that they were looking for a creative director, but they just didn't announce it yet. And then three months after that, I was in Hong Kong, never been there before first time. So that was kind of my first foray into Asia. Wow. And that was in a managerial position. Yeah. So I was a creative director uh, in Hong Kong, uh, managing regional accounts, so two two accounts specifically. So Ferrero Rocher, if you mm-hmm. if you like the chocolate, yeah. I'm and, familiar, yes. uh, oh, <laughs> I became very familiar with it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw that campaign on your website. The one that, I, that was the Korea-based campaign. I want to say that I saw. Yeah, Korea and Hong Kong. We did we did okay. for APEN. We did a bunch of stuff. But yes, yeah. But that seems like a lot. So it's your first experience working in Asia. You're in a managerial role and you don't have uh, the, the language background to communicate with all of these different, uh, I imagine, clients like Korea or, uh, you know, Japanese. You mentioned like there are definitely like language barriers there too, like Chinese, I presume as well. Like, what well, that must have been a lot to try to handle at once. Like, how did you deal with being in that situation? Yeah. Uh, well, Alicia, let me tell you, it was very humbling, <laughs> very, very humbling because it was the first time in my life where I was not just among uh, dealing with one cultural barrier, but many cultural barriers working across the APAC region. So um, my manager at the, uh, at the agency was a Canadian, and I think that what, what made things a little bit easier. And we ended up, and there was a couple other expats in the agency so for the most part, the language of business that happened within the agency and with clients was in English. So that was a huge uh, step to ma- towards making things easier. Of course, let's say about 60% of the agency were people from Hong Kong and in amongst their own groups, they would speak in Cantonese. And I'd know a word here or there, but for the most part in important meetings, we'd all speak in English. Mm-hmm. Um, when it came to clients, we'd all speak in English as well, with few exceptions, certain clients where the, their English wasn't the best. So we kind of like translate as we go. Um, but I would say way more than the language, 
was the cultural norms. Mm. I would say that was the real, not necessarily barrier, but like I would say learning curve or adapting to how different cultures do different things. Like just off the top of my head, mm. one of the main differences, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna generalize a bit, even though I don't necessarily like doing this all the time, but let's say between like uh, Far East culture, Asian cultures as a whole, for the most part, and the West, is if you have an issue, whatever that issue is, in the West, it tends to be a very direct approach. We have this issue, let's talk about it. Here's the thing, let's put it in the middle of the table. Everybody in the room is looking at it. All right, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? Let's deal with this directly. Okay, we dealt with it, it's done. In Asia, for the most part, from my experience, it's a very indirect approach. And it, it varies from culture to culture, like, you know, the indirectness in Japanese culture is different from the indirectness in Chinese culture and Korean culture, there's levels. Mm-hmm. But the common thing is indirect. It's, you have to kind of maneuver your way uh, around it <laughs> in a very delicate sense too. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was the huge learning curve to me. I wasn't really used to that, especially within the creative industry, a lot of times... there's the best ideas coming come out from like the non-existent like okay there's no egos just kind of like if you're in a brainstorming session okay just shoot like what what ideas they got like okay this is and we always say like you know the disclaimers like okay bad idea but how about this right like you know and we just try to get ideas out there but in in um in asia for the most part or in, in hong kong where i was working uh and later in in southeast asia common themes is a lot of people tend to be shy because they don't want to say any bad ideas Mm. and they're afraid that they will they that they could be judged not all of them but a lot of them will be judged like i don't want my first idea that i say is to be a bad idea so you get a lot of silence especially in a group for a scenario which Mm -hmm. is kind of interesting Mm. so yeah Lots, lots, lots to learn. And I would say it was, um, it was amazing because as creatives, we look for challenges. Oh, it's and, challenging. <laughs> That's, oh. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So finding yourself in that experience then, I mean, like there, obviously there are two ways that you can go there, really, like generally speaking, you can either adapt, like you said, you know, to learn to be less direct in your approach, to learn how to be indirect how to work with your colleagues from different countries and cultures or you can take the approach of just trying to continue smashing your way through everything from what i've heard from people on this series so far generally smashing your way through will get you through a couple steps but it's gonna like fracture your relationships with people like maybe you'll achieve what you want to achieve in that moment because people are so like kind of off put by your aggressiveness but in general, they'll be so uncomfortable working with you that you'll find that they kind of fade away or they don't want to continue working with you in the future. So like what I, I think you've kind of already hinted at it. Like, did you find that you were able to kind of adapt to that less direct manner of working? Was that something that was challenging for you? Yes. It, it, and it took time, like everything else, because um, especially coming from the West, we tend to think that it's all about the idea guys. Don't worry. Like we're not, there's no egos in the room over here. It's just about the idea. Um, and nobody's judging you. No, 
he's not judging you. She's not judging you. I'm not judging you. Nobody's judging everybody else. But so there was, there was a couple kind of like trying to trying hard to kind of like, let's work this way, but then realize that you are one and they are the culture you're coming to their culture. You need to adapt to their culture. You may be able to, it's in a sense, it's short-term versus long-term. What's, what's your view? You like, you can, you can, as you said, to use your term, like you can smash your way to like short-term benefits, but are you there for short-term benefits or are you there for long-term relationships? And especially when dealing with clients, it really is all about long-term relationships that you want to build over time. It's building trust. And then after a lot of handholding and once you establish that trust, then surprisingly, there, there are those gaps. There are those moments where you can get ideas through or you can see a different perspective or shine a light uh, on some different way of thinking and it's that moment where you're like oh but it takes time it takes you really you need to be in it as you as you're aware of i'm sure right it's a long it's a long haul effort mm-hmm. but actually I, that's something that i've come to appreciate and it is a two-way street too i've found like after you've established that relationship with somebody after many years or whatever maybe you come to them with an idea or something but sometimes someone will come to me with an idea someone i maybe never really expected uh, someone would come to me with an idea and there'd be a moment where I'd go, oh, wow, that person trusts me with this idea. Like that's a, that's kind of a special moment too, where you realize that you've established that bond with this creative person, or, you know, this person that's in your network and think like, wow, like, you know, just, just by working, as you said, to like maintain and keep those like long-term relationships and to continue to build that trust, like you might be surprised, I think, like what, what, little things, you know, bubble to the top from time to time. But I'm curious, like where our discussion is focused right now on uh, your experiences in Asia. I was wondering, how does this experience compare perhaps to working in a professional environment? Like uh, if you have experience uh, working back in Egypt, like what is there, are there any similarities or what are, what are the similarities and differences in professional and creative culture there? So I didn't work too much in Egypt. Like the when I was uh, interning in this design studio, it was three years. So I, I, I really, it's hard for me, but I do have a lot of friends that I'm still very much connected with that are in Cairo. So I can speak in a vicarious sense. Uh, I'm aware of their experiences. Uh, the work culture seems to be a, a very different in a sense. Uh, I would say more on the Western side of things Egyptian culture tends to be very expressive and uh, almost like an extreme version of the Western culture in a, in a sense really? where it's, um, yeah, like a, it's very much like a, not a, I'm trying to find the word, like not a machismo culture, but it's very much like a, like a shouting match sometimes. Like, you know, the loudest, the loudest idea wins, not necessarily the best idea wins. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, it's, it's very, it's very, it's a very vocal culture. It's almost like the, in the, in the express, ex, the expression that you see in the, in the West, but to an extreme. Um, so it's, it's, I'd say it's very different, but I don't, again, I don't have that much experience working in that part of the world. So I, I can't really say with that much certainty. I yeah. see. I see. But still, that's very, very interesting. Like to imagine <laughs> like that, 
the what like the kind of American or Canadian mindset like amplified that. I'm so yeah. curious about that. Cool. So then, given all of this experience, all of these different uh, cultures that you've worked with um, and projects that you've worked on, how would you say that all of these experiences have influenced and contributed to the way that you approached your work today? Considering uh, multiple perspectives. Um, mm-hmm especially in a city like Toronto, like I'm back in Toronto right now and Toronto where I've, I don't know if you've ever been, but we're a very multicultural city. Uh, we're 3 million and um, there's so many different uh, ethnicities and nationalities. And especially in the work that we do over here, we pride ourselves on, you know, as is the Canadian way, um, making sure that everybody gets adequate, adequate representation. So a lot of the ads, like um, clients make sure or make sure that agencies tick off all of the diversity boxes. Is every, all, like all the minorities getting representation? We don't want like, you know, uh, to, for it to skew to like one ethnicity or one sexuality. So there's a very broad thing. So having that global perspective really helped me coming back over here to Toronto to kind of convey that in the professional communications that I'm working on. I see. I see. Okay. Fantastic. Then uh, continuing to kind of uh, to talk about your professional work, but moving in a slightly different uh, direction, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, the, the recognition that you've received for your work. So looking like looking at your website, there's a long list of recognitions uh, and awards that you've received. And uh, it's a topic that's come up uh, here and there throughout the series. Um, another, actually a French uh, creative director, a woman uh, uh, who worked in Sweden and is now based in Japan. She, her comments about um, like recognition and awards, um, she was saying that like uh, a lot of people kind of tend to chase those things, tend to chase uh, recognition or, or, or look to receive some kind of uh, praise uh, for their creative work. Uh, as a person who has received uh, some professional recognition, I was wondering about your thoughts. Uh, is, that, is it something that creatives should use their energy to pursue those kinds of, those awards, that kind of recognition in their work? Or sh- is that something that they need to be actively working towards achieving? Or is it better, you think, to apply your energy elsewhere? I've had many different stances on that topic throughout my career there's at times where I was really award driven and there's other times where I thought it was very superfluous and now I have a very balanced uh, outlook towards awards recognition and their role within a creative careers journey I think they're they're important um for a couple of reasons. One of the first reasons I'd say is it, be, it makes creatives aware of certain standards that exist, certain global standards. So when you aim to get global awards, you're aware of like, okay, that's the standard. It elevates the standard of, you, of your work because you're working towards that level. You want that level of recognition. So that's always nice in terms of elevating the standard of one's own work. And then the second thing is as a career, as a tool for career advancement, 
So it really, like as somebody like myself who worked, I've worked in the States, I've worked in Canada, I've worked in, uh, in Ape, throughout APAC as well. It really helped. It makes moving around the world easier because it's kind of like the, the currency in a sense, or like, oh, you've got a recognition from, from Cannes or from Clio's. Like I understand it's a common kind of like understanding of like uh, the level of quality that you operate of. So it really helps one advance in, uh, in their career. That being said, I, I do think it shouldn't be your whole life as a creative. I would say it should be less than half. Like I would say like maybe 40% of your focus should be on awards. The rest should be on life. Just as simple as, as that, because you need to be inspired and fueled from all these original ideas that creatives that you're going to come up with as a creative, they need, it's going to be, it's only going to be as original as the life that you lead. So if you lead a life that is very awards driven and all you can see is, and I, I know a lot of people like that. And, and I mean, a lot of them are very, very successful, but it's almost like, um, I mean, excuse the term, like inbreeding, right? You're just consuming what the industry is, is, is put is outputting and all your, all your inspiration, all your exposure is just to what the commercial culture is, is, is feeding you watch movies, go out, live a creative life, go on adventures and try to think beyond just the awards. Awards are important, but it shouldn't be everything. Mm. Your life, your life in a sense should be more important uh, and the quality of life and different creative venues that you have. So if you feel like making a chair one day, make it a side project. Like, and like, you, you would be very surprised at the creativity and inspiration that will come to you from side projects as well. Mm. And how it could also like elevate your, your, your career as well. Cause as a, as somebody also who has been in a ma- or in a managerial position, um, I look into younger people to see how diverse are their creative interests. Mm. Oh, really? So you actually, you take a look, and when you say diverse interests, you mean like, are they focusing on the one field or do they have many different types of creativity that they're interested in? So that's, that's something that you actually look at as a measurement of kind of their maybe adventurousness, I suppose? Yeah, it doesn't have to be a lot, but it, I just, I'm looking for, like, of course, if you have awards, that's nice. But if you just do something that's a little bit unorthodox, that's to me is so interesting. What, what that tells me as somebody who's looking at, whether it's mentoring somebody who's in a junior position or helping them throughout their career, it's like, you are an original thinker. You have the capacity and the capability come up with original thoughts. And what that would translate into is an original great idea for, let's say for a brand or something like that, something that hasn't been done before. There's a lot of, a lot of, especially when you work in the creative communications and see there's a lot of similarities between ideas, right? It's very cyclical too. It's like, Oh, that idea was done 10 years ago. That idea was done 20 years ago. So original thing and original thinking comes from broadening your horizons and different perspectives. Mm-hmm. 
I completely, completely agree. Completely agree. And I want to use this topic. I think this is the perfect topic uh, to segue into a question that um, former guest on the show, Sharif, has sent to ask you uh, during our discussion today. Uh, He asked, uh, does the current age of social media have a positive or a negative effect on creativity? It's a big question. Yeah, I'm trying to think. The current age of, of social media, mean, meaning like how long it's been around for? Is it... I my understanding of this question is does does the like does the environment itself of social media and the consumption of creative projects oh, via social media? That's my understanding of this question. Yeah. Oh, like the age the age that we're living in. Okay. Yes. 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 On creativity in general, I would say yes because a lot of times, like if we look at you know phones over here. Uh, you know, like the show Black Mirror. Uh, yeah, I've been, I've heard only like, what's the best word to use here? Everybody who watches it says it's so good, but you can't ever take it back. <laughs> so I'm afraid to watch it for that reason. Like, I like, it, I. <laughs> it's dark. <laughs> That's what I've heard. That's what I've heard. And especially in like this, maybe like this year is not the best year to watch it. Like we're already <laughs> right? going through some weird times, so. But it's it's very enjoyable. It's very intriguing. Uh, but the reason I'm mentioning it is like it's Black Mirror is in references. Like they called the show based on the screens, right? Black Mirror, like the dark mm-hmm. the dark side of technology. That's what it is. Okay. I like to call them black holes. So I like to call these things black okay. holes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Reason, this. Yeah. 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 Well. The, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh no no you I I want to hear about a uh, black hole first and then I'll and then I'll pick up. Yeah, so uh, the, I like technology, and I've, I'm, I'm always fascinated by what it can offer and the, the new horizons that it opens up. But a lot, especially with social media specifically, as Sharif is, is, is talking about with reference to creativity, it sucks you in. Like all of these programs, if, you're, if you don't really have your willpower and your motives and your goals aligned and in check you can get sucked in. that's why i call it black hole you just get sucked in like you open the facebook app you open the twitter app and before you know it like it's designed to keep you in the app and from from a, a graphical user interface from a design perspective i get it you want you want to maximize the the time that people spend with your app because so you can say like you know when you go to advertisers like look on average users spend like two hours a day on, on the app. So like, you know, the chances of them seeing your ad are like, you know, 40, 40%. You want mm-hmm. people to spend more time on the thing. But what that ends up in doing is that, well, A, it's a time killer. It just kills time. And like a lot of times creativity needs time to manifest, doing things that are just more than just staring at a screen. So I find that to be a very dangerous side effect and, um, it's very, it's very hard for a lot of people to control. Absolutely, because exactly as you said, they're designed to keep you there. Like there, there, there's a hook like in every single one of the apps that's designed to make sure that like you, you feel good about opening the app and checking your Instagram feed or whatever. And all of us are, you know, are are vulnerable to it. I know, like there's so many, so many days where I go, oh my gosh, how long was I on my phone? I can't believe it, and I just feel like disgusted with myself. 
there's a new word actually that's been going around the last several several months. I think has been picking up speed because the you know world news is overwhelmingly negative these days, uh, and it's in reference specifically to Twitter. I think the word is doom scrolling. Uh, they de they describe the act of sitting on Twitter and just because there's the endless scroll now, right? So people who will just who will read news story after news story after news story and just they find that they just can't stop or hours pass and they've been on their phone and they're like, oh my gosh, I've, I've been doom scrolling all day. And I'm like, that's such a great word. That's such a great word to describe that activity. And like, and the feeling that you have afterwards too, that like, you feel like you need to read to try to keep up with all the information, but then you feel so bad afterwards. So it's true. Like, um, but so my, my thinking is like, if you can inject a little bit of like, something creative or something interesting, something to kind of disrupt that activity, then that's good. But as you say, it's really hard to do. And it's unless you go into it, unless you open the app with a goal, it's so hard. It's so hard to stay focused on that. But speaking I wanted phrases, to, yeah. No, sorry, speaking of phrases, I wanted to ask you something since you're in, in Japan. I mm -hmm. came across this phrase and I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm gonna say it exactly. Maybe you'll know the exact way of saying it. Um, I think it was from a, like a Japanese theme park uh, at the beginning of Corona. And they were saying like, scream, scream inside your heart or something like that. Yeah, that was the literal translation. I, because the English got so much traction, like the word in, in English, we tend to say like um, in your mind, right? Like think about something in your mind or, you know, process it in your mind. But uh, in Japanese, the word is instead of saying, you know, think about something in your mind, they say like, use your heart. Like that's just uh -huh. the that's the vocabulary choice there. <laughs> so when, when they said, like we would have said, like, you know, enjoy it in your mind or enjoy it quietly in your mind, like in the in English, it came out as scream inside your heart in Japanese, which is not wrong, <laughs> but hilarious. So that's one of those situations, that's one of those examples of things I just love where it's like just the right combination of words like that are just like so wonderful and <laughs> they communicate this idea that's oddly appropriate for the situation too like so many people took away that 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 like that phrase and said this is just 2020 for me you know like yeah it's, it's i love that as soon as i heard it i'm like yes so funny yeah, so funny uh but on a i wanted like on a slightly more positive shift i wanted to go back to you were talking about uh people describing uh the phone the smartphone as a black hole or as a black mirror or whatever and it made me think of um, a, a project that I worked on many years ago with a group of architects. This was my part of my former job. And they were talking about the issue of social media with relationship to architecture. And one of them, uh, in one of the interviews that we did, the architect was talking about smartphones. But uh, in this case, he was talking about the potential to see a smartphone as a window. Uh, so not just as sort of a, a time suck or as kind of this, this, uh, re this reflecting thing, but uh, as a window into another person's experience or into another person's wor world. So I kind of, I've kind of been trying to think of it more in that way. Like how do, how can I use my phone or how could I use my various devices and my, uh, the tools that I have as a more of like a window or like, I mean, there's that Twitter app like Periscope as well that was around for a little while how can we use them more in that way and less as you know these just these black holes as you describe them because i think that like there is undoubtedly the like the potential for both of those things uh, to happen but 
because they're designed to be addictive, we tend to fall more into the hole, unfortunately. Yes, it's a tricky, it's a tricky balance because I, for example, uh, I love Instagram. I absolutely love, it's my favorite app. Uh, it's a very visual app and I love the fact that they introduce video and I get so much inspiration from there, just whether it's, um, you know, if I want, I'm like, oh, I'm like, you know what, uh, 80s aesthetic. And you just put it in and you just get exposed to so much visual stimulus. Uh, so I, I do agree with um, your friend who said, like, it's kind of like a window. But I guess the, the danger, because especially coming from the creative industry and being aware of the graph, the 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 motive the motive the main motive of a graphical user interface and an uh, a, com- a corporation having an app is to get people to spend more time on that because I'm a little bit aware of that it's it's this tricky balance because like uh, yeah I could easily spend two hours on Instagram but is that the best usage of my time mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of like a you have to like it's like I love you okay but I want to <laughs> Right. I know. And it's so, it's so easy. It's like, I think of it as like a snack. Like it's the same feeling as like when you feel a little bit hungry and you go to your refrigerator and then to your snack cupboard or whatever, and you see what's there. For me, that's like mentally, like switching between like Twitter and Instagram and like YouTube, something like that. It's like mentally, I want a little snack. And then I switch, I go between all of them all throughout the day going, Oh, what, what looks good here? I'll consume a little bit of that. But like, then your snack time becomes like, (laughs) like, hours throughout the course of the day and you're like oh my god i'm so fat <laughs> so mentally mentally yeah gotta keep it gotta keep the mental diet fresh like when i was when i was a kid i was uh you know i was, I was diagnosed officially with adhd the oh, okay. uh, attention hyper deficit disorder or whatever it's called uh-huh. but uh never did i think like it would really be coming handy right now because it really helps you kind of like ooh, what's that Ooh, what's that it's like <laughs> take it away from the phone <laughs> yeah like there are times when all of us probably need someone to just slap the phone out of our hands be like go outside <laughs> you know there's sun out there anyway i'm getting away from like the the main things that i want to talk about and time is going quickly oh my gosh as always these discussions are so much fun i want to move into a little bit of like advice uh portions and like you've been of course dropping pieces of advice all throughout this conversation uh but i'm thinking from the perspective of a young person uh from or maybe not so young person but somebody who's thinking i'd like to go to another country i'd like to learn another language and i'd like to work outside of my home or outside of my community. Do you have any advice for that person? Is is there something that you think that that person should do or should not do? Or conversely, (laughs) maybe another way to put it, is there anything that you wish you had done or that you hadn't done in your experience? Uh, Focusing on what what people should do first, it's more so uh, I'm assuming like, you know, you're a young creative and you have aspirations to work in a specific place that's outside of your city or out of, uh, out of your country. Mm-hmm. Set a goal first. It helps to set a goal. And even though that goal, you may not realize that goal depends, but you should at least try for it because I would say it's about the journey. It's not a, it's not about the goal. Like, yes, so many times we don't necessarily like, I always thought it was like Japan, Japan. I really want to go work in Japan. Like, sure, it would be great to work in Japan, 
but I ended up working in Hong Kong, which is also really cool too, right? And I still got to visit Japan a lot. And so you never really know what your future has in store, but you have to try. You have to, and it's easier to try when you set goals for yourself, whether it's like, okay, like these are the companies or this is the city that I want to work in and start doing some research. And this is really the power of the internet. The internet made doing research and reaching out to people so much easier. And um, the, the one main advice that I, that I would say is like, as much as you're doing reaching out in a digital form, I would ask, or I'd encourage people to consider physical forms as well. So what I mean is emails and, and reaching out is just so easy. And especially if you're in the, you're trying to reach somebody in the creative industry in a managerial position, they're easily getting like, you know, a hundred or so emails a day. And like your, your email will just be an email in the middle of those emails, right? Especially if you're like, Hey, can you look at my stuff? I want to come at me. I kind of want to work over there. But what a lot of people undervalue the importance of is what if you sent a letter? What if you sent a package mail mail is still very amazing and it doesn't have to be much, but when somebody gets something physical, the power of something physical in this digital world that we live in, that's the advantage. And that's, that's one thing that I've always kind of said to young creatives trying to like make it in, in business think of what everybody is doing or think of what most people are doing and try to do not that try to do something different because that's that's it's all about standing out so stand out in your own way like if a lot of people are just like you know like if we're looking at applying for jobs on linkedin it's really easy as a young creative it's like oh easy apply easy apply easy apply i'm just going to you know my, it's like shotgun my resume out into the ether but what if you sent a package? If you have a specific, if you really want to work for a specific agency in mind and you want to target it, send them something. Find find somebody, find a name, try to establish a relationship with that name. Send them something. And even if they don't end up hiring you or talking to you, trust me, your your effort will make an impact. And who knows? This this is a business, it's all about connections, and one thing can lead to another. Is this something that you had experience with personally? Have you sent like digital or physical objects to people and in, in an effort to network with them? Yes, in my past, like uh, not necessarily, I would say for jobs per se, but like uh, I've always been a fan of sending physical things. So like a, a kind of, for example, one, one tradition that I have uh, whenever I would travel to a new city, I have about like 40 people that I send postcards to. So I, I have my list and nothing, nothing elaborate, just kind of like, you know, a little short, sweet sentence, but like, I like the ritual of, if I'm in a new city, I go, I find some cool designer postcards, I go get the stamps and I spend like a couple hours in a coffee shop. I like the idea of like sitting in a coffee shop in a different city and just like taking my time, like writing the postcards, sticking the stamps on there, going to the post office and the feeling of receiving uh, a postcard. My friends have always told me it's like, you know, it's just so nice, right? And so, you know, the tradition. So I like the idea of like the physical touch, which is kind of funny if you think about how the times have reversed what's happened. If you think about the first email that you ever received and how exciting that was. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I remember. I was probably 12. 
but but it was probably like the idea of a computer and an email was like oh my god right hotmail account i i could sign up for hotmail for free instant messages oh my gosh i was stoked about that yeah it's true you know isn't that funny now that now we get excited about the physical things because that's absolutely true now you know like those rare occasions when you receive something physical from someone who's taken the time to you know prepare something physical and write your name and address on a box or on you know an envelope and taking it to the post office or whatever all of those things like wow that's really special. There's something special about that now. Especially this year. Think, Alicia, about this year that we're living in where the physicality and the social distancing and the, the lack of intimacy and, and human connection and hugging and handshakes. Um, we're go And the fact that everything has turned digital, everything has become online, whether we like it or not. And every... Everything, everything at, one, at one point will return to normal, but I think there's going to be a huge desire for the physicality that we may see like a resurgence in our culture, in our culture, common culture for the act of doing physical things. I think of there'd be a lot of cravings for like, I mean, I'm sure you really miss hugging. Like I miss hugs. Oh, totally. I miss hugging people. Totally. I miss, I miss just, yeah, getting together with my friends and, and giving each other hugs at the end of our dinners together and saying goodnight. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All those little things that just poof, gone. But of course, in, in Japan, hugging is, is maybe it's not that common. That's true. So that that's something that I did with my non-Japanese friends. So, non-Japanese. I mean, you, you get close with, you know, with Japanese people too. And then, you know, they hug as well. Not, maybe not as much but it's, it's the hug one person does like this and the other person goes like that <laughs> <laughs> well i suppose it's probably that's probably a situation though maybe there's more than maybe there's more than culture going on there maybe that's somebody that's a little uncomfortable in general i don't know but uh because time is going quickly i've taken so much of your time already today i want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about the last yeah, of couple course. of things i wanted to ask you about uh thank you for all of your really cool and it's an interesting advice, especially about the physicality thing. I'm going to think about that for sure. Uh, I want to ask then about uh, some more forward looking things then for you. Uh, do you have a next project or a next thing that you're considering pursuing? Uh, something physical or digital or perhaps like a, another a new thing that people can look out for? It's also kind of a, uh, a place where I thought I'd maybe mention your YouTube project uh that you've been working on kind of this travel video as music video if i'm understanding that correctly mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> is there something that there's something that you're working on next totally yeah so i've always as a creative i've always made i've always been interested in so many different things and i always have so many different side projects on the go and i've ever since the inception of social media I've loved kind of like representing myself on there and sharing things with friends and, but it was all quite fragmented in a sense. Like what I was doing on Facebook was, was different than Instagram was different than Twitter. And uh, one of the benefits, this is one of the weird times, like there was a benefit of COVID. Like, yeah, one of the benefits of this COVID time is um, I started thinking about like, I'm doing all these things on social media. Why, why don't I just unify it in a sense and kind of structure it in a more creative way? I was just kind of like doing it for fun. Like, oh, there's this, there's that, there's this. But 
let's structure it and let's plan it. And like how about, and I found YouTube, the idea of doing a YouTube show, a YouTube content channel was the best way to manifest that. And an episode, uh, as episodes in a sense, and I, uh, my, uh, my YouTube channel is called Good Morning Eve, Ibrahim. My name is Eve, that's my nickname. And I've always been fascinated. Morning is my favorite time of day. And it signifies to me so much hope and so much potential. It's the beginning. It's all about beginning. So I like the idea of a show. Uh, it doesn't always happen in the morning, but it's, it's more positive shows, positive messages, whether it's me doing adventures. And, you know, I, it, I have, there's a couple episodes where I'm discovering the uh, Toronto street art scene. Uh, I'm discovering like, what's happening with social distancing in the park and talking to people and, or I'm discovering, I'm interviewing people like you're doing right now and kind of like seeing like, oh, what makes them, I'm, I'm naturally like yourself, very curious and getting, I get a lot of inspiration from other people as well. So that to me was a perfect venue. It's like, yeah, I'm going to start a YouTube channel and then I'm going to continue. That's like a perfect way for me to do planned adventures. I like the idea of like, okay, I'm going to, like in a couple of weeks, I just came, sorry, I just came back from Montreal visiting my youngest brother and I filmed a whole bunch of content over there. Like, you know, we went to like antique shopping together. And so I'm going to, I'm going to upload those episodes too. And then, and then in a couple of weeks, I have a friend of mine, uh, a create another creative director, and he's been doing for the past, I think six, seven years, this rock skipping event. So he has like this huge gathering on the beach. And it's a comp it's a rock skipping competition, and he has like prizes and that kind of thing. So that like that's an episode too, right? So interesting. Yeah, so I, I like the idea of like a uh, a format that has lent itself to a very um, articulated, organized way of expressing uh, my creativity. Yeah. Mm, yeah, it's YouTube is a very interesting beast. There are so many moving parts to it, and there are. I know that for most people looking from the outside, it looks like just a video. <laughs> like, sure, I can just take a little video with my phone on the street and then I'll upload it to the internet and all these people will watch it. But there's so much room within that to, to explore and to, to create and also to find out like what kind of video editor you are. Like you learn so many like skills that people maybe don't see on the surface uh, through, through making content for YouTube. Um, and it's so interesting. Like you get, I think, insights into people's personality a bit through seeing the stuff that they create uh, in that format, especially like, cause you see how quickly do they cut between video or between shots? You know, what kind of shots are they choosing? What kind of music are they choosing? What are the fonts that they're choosing for their, for their work? You know, like how are they, are they subtitling or not? Like, you know, the, all these little tiny decisions they add up and, you really get a sense of the kind of things that people make through seeing uh, the stuff that they produce in general. But I think that YouTube is a, a special place where lots and lots of different skills come together. Uh, so like I was actually, uh, before, before our discussion, I was looking at your YouTube channel. <laughs> I watched the, I watched a couple of the videos that you put out there. One, the one that you had titled like the, the most dangerous park in, in Canada or something like that. That one about social distancing where you're like, nobody's social distancing here. I feel like all of Toronto is here. I've been thinking that about some parks in Tokyo. Uh, but the other one, the one that I really, really liked was um, you, it was an Egypt video. You're, you have this video about uh, like travel to Egypt. It's like there wasn't any 
like uh, you know monologuing it wasn't like you know video on the street it was a series of shots and then uh, like a really upbeat uh, music that you chose him but I wanted to ask you I think because I think this is a culture cultural point or language point that flew over my head when I was watching it there's one part in that video where there's like uh, faces that appear in like pink and blue circles and it seemed to be timed to the music what 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 is that what's uh what yeah, what was so that i was curious about it everybody has to go if you're listening or you're watching this you have to go and watch you have to go and watch his video on his uh his travel channel now yeah so like that egypt video as as i think you referred to them as travel music videos which is spot on that's exactly how i see them as well like you know coming back from travels to kind of like instead of like dumping a photo album on facebook it's like here's i went to you know egypt or whatever. i was like trying to make it express it in a very interesting way and like sync it to me i've always been fascinated with um syncing video to like a song that i like so the song that is in that video is by this electronic uh ensemble from egypt and greece it's kind of like a mix called shabaka which means the net in in arabic and uh, the, the 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 name or the what what the, the person is like the the faces that are coming up are corresponding with names. So that what is being said in Arabic is names of people. So so I think it's like Ashraf Hamedo and like these are all names. But what the faces that I put on there, uh, they're of like the f- the first name that comes to mind of a celebrity in Egypt. I just kind of like put it on there. So the, like okay. all of those are like, uh, so for example, like, like if I were to say like Brad, the first celebrity that you think of is like, oh, Brad Pitt, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Or like Nicholas, like Nicholas Cage. So I kind of did the same thing, but within Egyptian culture. So it's, it's very inside like Egyptian culture. So like you're seeing like all of these, like one is like a TV actor, one's a, a football player, one's just like so-and-so, and they just kind of like come up time with the music. It's a little funny, funny bit, but like, if you don't know who these are, you're like, okay, what the hell is going on? <laughs> no, but I could, I kind of could guess that like there was, there was yes, some no, joke that was yeah. happening there. And I was like, I want to be in on this joke. <laughs> so I wanted to make sure to ask you about it. Like, yeah, but I, I enjoyed watching that because it was, it was so like, one of the issues this is a total side topic, but like a lot of like YouTube travel travel videos like there are a lot of great things out there for sure but I, I guess I struggle sometimes because some channels make it like really fabricated like the host will be like kind of phony feeling or uh, and this is true of like you know major network shows as well but like I, I, I think that might be the first time or the first time in a very long time that I've seen a travel video with no like host and it didn't feel manufactured at all it just felt like these are real scenes that I'm seeing uh, and it had a, a sense of humor about it too. So I liked it. I liked the video. So yeah. two things I'd like to mention. The first thing is like when you're talking about like when you see like uh, what I what I found is really interesting and I could definitely were on the same wavelength in terms of like how YouTube can be a window into somebody, how they think. Like when you said like their editing style is kind of like how they think. Um, that's so true. And like, I remember when, before I started my YouTube channel, I was, one of the reasons I started is I found like, I stopped watching TV long, long time ago. I mean, like cable TV, like I would watch YouTube more than anything else. Like I'd hook up YouTube to my TV and just sit and watch YouTube. So I kind of, okay. When the conscious decision came to like start a YouTube channel, who's doing what? Let's see all the different. And 
I mean, when you're talking about like editing as a way of thinking, like let's let's talk about like Logan Paul, for example, who was you know famous in Japan for a bit. And, like his editing style is like wow, 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 and it's so funny how popular it is. But like I, I just it was like overload to me, right? It's like uh, who's who's consuming this content, right? right but, it, but there's there's a market for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, but I mean, you see the same editing styles reflected in like TikTok videos, for example. Yes. You know? It's like, there's, there's a very, like there are, there are top, there's uh, essays that you can read now about the, about this topic and how the way that videos are edited and even the way that YouTubers speak uh, has been kind of shaped by the platforms. That's a whole, it's a fascinating topic, but a whole different discussion. One of my favorite. And the second thing is one of my favorite YouTubers that uh, inspired me. I, I really like how he does, he go about doing his content mm-hmm. is in Japan, Chris, Chris Broad. From oh the yeah, Abroad. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I know of him. I have not met him personally, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I came, I came across his channel recently. It was this year. I wasn't really aware of it uh, before this year, but as soon as I came across it, I was like, um, it's so interesting, especially discovering somebody after they've done, been doing content for like six years or seven years. And you're like, oh, there's all that backlog of content to, to discover. Yeah, to binge. And, uh, but I, I really like his cadence in terms of he's kind of like the anti-YouTuber YouTuber. Like he, he pokes fun a lot at like what YouTube, what is supposed to be done on YouTube. Hey guys, you know, like, and subscribe and all that kind of, you know, like the stuff. <laughs> That's a, that's a whole, yeah, there's a whole conversation about that. Like, no, I don't think anybody wants to say like and subscribe, but if you don't say that, yeah. people forget, you know, people will just go, oh, that was a nice video. And then they leave and then they forget your channel exists, you know? So it's like, ah, you don't tell people what you want them to do. It's like, that's a good chance they won't do it. So I guess it's, it's, it's like how you do it. Like they're sent because a lot of YouTubers, it's very formulaic and they do it in the same way. It's like, Hey, everybody, you know, this is your you know, boy, you know, so-and-so like, don't forget to like, like, like let's say like 80% of YouTubers do it exactly like that. And I guess it's like, I'm not necessarily opposed to like that. Cause I get it. You want people to like and subscribe to your channel, mm-hmm. but it's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, I think how you do, there's a lot of like, that's where creativity can come into play. Like, you know, having a little bit of fun, like, okay, you want people to do that, but What's up? Like, you know, get them in on the joke. Yeah. Joke, right? That or like, I, I like to try, I like to tell people why I'm asking them to like or subscribe. Like it's part of my job. Uh, like I, I do a live stream, uh, an English lesson once a week. And uh, as part of that, like uh, we ask people to like and like to share the video. And so I always say like, please like and share this video so other people can find today's lesson. Like that's, that's cause that's exactly what the reason is. So it's like, I would, I feel like too there's a there's kind of a disconnect sometimes like why is this person asking me to subscribe like do they care that much about numbers it's like no it's not so much that it's about like working together with an algorithm to try to ensure like more people see it's this thing that we're working hard to create but see Alicia it's exactly how you said it right now that made all the difference the way you said it right now you know what it was it just came across as human like it came across as Mm -hmm. like you're having a real conversation conveying a real message as opposed to like this thing that you need to like regurgitate just because like that what helps the algorithm and i think that's what a lot of people do it's like i don't know no, i gotta say this you know you know because of the algorithm right but like the way yeah. he says like please do this and do this because it would benefit me but then also at the same time like and here's the benefit it could have for other people right and then, right as soon as you said that i'm like yes 
that's it right it's like you just tell people why as well <laughs> like I feel I don't know like I guess I I just also I'm kind of like why should I do this thing you know give me a reason to do it and then a, like I can I can say oh I agree with that reason okay and you know do it or not so but uh, I could talk about YouTube all day so I will not <laughs> I will not spend the rest of our time together talking about this topic uh, but you shared about this project uh, and I also wanted to make sure to mention your very cool uh, illustration series your movie poster series uh, that anybody if you're listening or if you're watching this uh, this episode please check out uh, Eve's very cool movie illust movie poster illustrations of uh, a variety of kind of like classic, I think, movies. Uh, they're on your website, your Creative yeah, Projects website. It's so funny because like, I'm just realizing like, okay, there's my uh, personal illustration website. There's the YouTube channel. There's my professional site. <laughs> there's all the different, it depends on. Almost yeah, so, everybody, almost everybody says that. They're like, oh my God, I have so many projects. <laughs> I have so many links. <laughs> This, this, this. I almost should do like a website for the websites. Like you go to the website and then there's like in the website, there's like links to the other websites. You should uh, check out a link tree. That's exactly what you just described. Oh, I'm going to write that down right now. I will send you a link to link tree <laughs> so that you can see. But basically lots of, uh, and this is maybe good for uh, other like uh, digital creatives who are watching and listening. Link tree uh, is popular on places like Instagram where you can only put one link in like your bio or whatever. So you put a link to your link tree there and people click on that and they get like a list of like your of like five links that you've chosen, like, you know, your homepage and your online store, like your latest interview or something like that. So you that's can exactly it. what I need. That's so cool. Right. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good little tool, a little tip for everybody here at the end of our conversation today. So uh, given that I will put all of your links in the description for this YouTube video and for this podcast. So everybody watching and listening can go and check out, all of your cool projects, uh, side projects and main projects and learn more about you. And is there any place that we can find you on social media to follow, follow you along? Yeah, the, this is the unification that I was talking about. So good morning, Eep. Okay. You'll find me everywhere. So you look on whatever you look on, you'll find it. <laughs> got it. Got it. Okay. I'll put links to that. Uh, in the description as well then. Fantastic. So we've reached the end of our time together. Thank you very, very much for all of your insights and for sharing about your experiences. I really enjoyed hearing about this. And as always, I feel like I could continue talking to you about so many I was gonna say, like, I, I, I know that feeling now. It's like, I don't want this to end. This is so, so <laughs> Right? I always feel that way at the end of these. I'm always like, wow, this is such a cool person. Like, I always hope, like, you know, we have more, more time to talk, but this is that time for the series. So <laughs> I'll end it here. But if you have any final thoughts that you would like to add, now is your chance. Uh, stay positive, guys. I know this has been a rough year for a lot of people, but even though sometimes I may forget, if we tend to think about the cup is cup is half full, half empty analogy, whether like, are you a half full person, half empty person? I like to think, and I don't always remember this, but when I do, it really brings me comfort. The cup is always full because we need air too. Excellent. I love it. I love that positive feeling at the end. Thank you so much for your time today, Eve. It was wonderful to chat with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Non-Native Creative. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you never miss an interview. 
Also, please make sure to stop by the project Patreon at patreon.com slash non-native Patrons can get access to Patreon-only discussions, bonus behind-the-scenes media, interview transcripts, and access to patron-only live streams. Your support will help make sure the series can continue to share exciting, interesting stories from creative people working across borders. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.